0: Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Ian, one of my favorite parts about having the show is being able to go out and find real entrepreneurial stories that can inspire and inform your action. And this isn't just like a sort of a theoretical thing. Like this, for me, I didn't meet what I would call an entrepreneur until I was 24-ish. Late in life entrepreneur. Yeah, and they're still relatively difficult to find. Like The types of entrepreneurship we talk about on this show, they're still very rare, right? It's hard to find these people. And those stories that, or we call them scripts, sometimes the entrepreneurial script is a rare one. It's difficult to spot in the wild. But when you can get your hands on a good one that's not full of BS, it's full of real experience, real endurance, and real success and value... That's what this pod is all about for me, you know? And today we've got a story of entrepreneurial endurance and success. And here's the thing about most of us that are writing and creating our own entrepreneurial scripts and and journeys, Ian, is that it's very rarely going to be what you expected, right? There's going to be a lot of false starts and problems and left turns that come out of the blue. And that was certainly the case for today's guest, Dan Taylor, who I first met about six years ago, randomly in the Philippines. Dan had by then started his current business, Apps Events, a Google education partner which runs conferences for teachers all across the world. Dan is now based in Prague, and he has a full-time team of 10 who are also located around the world, some in the Philippines, some in the US, and some in Europe. And it's pretty cool because he hosts like 300 events a year and so he gets to choose like which ones he wants to go attend, which I think for the traveling entrepreneur, pretty cool gig.
1: I've had the chance to hang out with Dan on many occasions. We have a lot in common including our love for hip hop. <laughs> and Dan is an interesting character I think you'll find out in this episode. He's from the UK, living in Prague speaking the language so i'm thinking spy that's my first thought <laughs> i got to know him and his story more turns out maybe he's still a spy maybe. <laughs> <laughs> my
0: research suggests that dan taylor has been an entrepreneur for 14 years now and he went through a lot of trials earlier on in his career and we're going to get into those in today's interview we're going to talk about why his earlier businesses ultimately failed and also how long it took Dan to start humming along and replacing the income he had at his previous job. For me, talking to entrepreneurs that are further along on the journey than me has always been completely invaluable to get a sense of perspective on what lies ahead. So if you're curious about what might lay ahead on the entrepreneurial road in your case, this episode is for you. So I started off by asking Dan where it all began.
2: What happened was I was an IT guy. I worked for Deloitte Consulting, and I went freelancing. Freelancing is a really good intermediate stage. When I was permanent, I wanted to be a freelancer because I worked with this guy. He was a really cool guy. I'm still friends with him, and he had a Ducati motorbike, and then when it came to 5 o'clock, he'd be walking around the office with his like bike leathers on, telling everyone he was off riding his bike while we were going to stay at work, and he was getting paid more than us. And so I wanted to be a contractor. And I did that. And then, then I was like, hang on a minute, this is like an in-between stage. So pretty quickly, I think maybe three months into contracting, I figured I wanted a real business, you know, because you get a taste for it. You know, when you're a contractor, you're invoicing, and, and you realize there's a whole world of, of business there. And I'd lost any kind of stability, you know, pension and severance. So it was pretty quickly contracting. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. When people ask you that aren't entrepreneurs what it's all
0: about, how do you describe the word entrepreneur or the career path of being one?
2: I always start by saying it's the best thing and then quickly go into it's, it's the worst thing. It's amazing. I set my own agenda. I don't have to have a boss haranguing me. And then I quickly get into, my mind always goes into the negatives, which are in the beginning, you're not paying yourself for quite a long time. Even though you've lost your boss, your customers are still your boss. So you end up with like several bosses as opposed to just one haranguing you. I always give the plus and the minus because I think, as you know very well, it's not one sided, you know. How long would you say it took you to get back some of the safety and security that you gave up in your career? It's interesting because my first business was a consultancy based in Prague, where, where I am now. I, I had a good friend and we started doing some IT consulting, but mainly we shifted to recruitment. So from 2004, 2005, I really made nothing. 2006 and seven, we really that was the two years when I really transitioned to making money. The financial crisis hit in 2008, and we went back to absolute zero. So literally, I had four years build up in a market like we were in, you know, a local market. This is before I discovered the four-hour work week and all these, you know, the way I run my business now. We were on the local market, and the local market just died overnight. So I went back again and then had to start again, and it took me another four years, probably, until I met you in 2012 to really be, to be successful again. What changed about the way you ran your business when you discovered the four hour work week? Everything, really. Some of it I already knew. Like the geo arbitrage thing I'd already figured out. You know, I was living in Prague, which back then was was a low cost place. I was consulting, I had I had customers in, in the UK and stuff. The thing that really got me was the fact that you can have a virtual team. You don't need an office. I mean back then, you know, this business, we had twelve employees, an expensive office. It was high overheads. And I just realized we didn't need any of this. That was life changing. Like, I mean, I think like yourself, that book changed everything in my in my business and in my life, not just my business life, but my life.
0: Let's pick up the story when the financial crisis hit and you started to see things go sour. Like, what did that
2: feel like? What were the indications that you guys weren't going to be able to make it? The business just dropped off a cliff overnight. Probably we were making maybe fifty thousand dollars a month, and it went down to like three. We went down to the fact we stopped paying ourselves for a year. We didn't even pay ourselves a salary. So how did you respond? You know, we just dug in, worked really hard. I'm not actually sure it was the right thing to do though, you know. I think possibly walking away, we didn't have any debt. You know, we could have just walked away from the business. And we just worked really, really hard for like three and a bit years and got it back to the point where I ended up selling my share of the business. Somebody actually offered to buy the business about a year after the financial crisis. And we turned it down for, you know, we thought, oh, we can can get a lot more money. But actually, it ended up being about the same as I sold it for after another two and a half years of really hard work. So it was a real mistake, actually, not to sell <laughs> a business, in hindsight, obviously. When you sold that business, what was the next step for you? And by the way, how would you describe like, the amount of
0: money that you made in terms
2: of your lifestyle? The, the amount of money I made was you know, enough for kind of a couple of years of income. You know? It wasn't a noticeable change in the lifestyle at all. So I'd actually started another business towards the end of this I was in discussions with a couple of people to buy my 50% of the business. I really wanted to get back in technology stuff. You know, the whole consulting recruitment thing, I, I didn't like it at all. I wanted to get back in tech. So a good friend of mine had gone to work for Google and he was like, Dan, take a look at this Google Apps as it was then. You know, it's amazing. It's free for schools and universities. It's going crazy in America. The Common Core is coming. And he got me involved. And we actually decided to develop an app, which, which in hindsight, you know, developing a SaaS app is, now I know what I know it, it's a pretty challenging undertaking, but I thought it would be really easy. And so we, we made an app for schools, which allowed schools to create a learning management system within Google Apps to get their grades online, to, to, to upload their course material, to have like a chat function with their teachers, all these kind of things. And nobody had one right then with Google Apps, so, so we developed this system. And what happened? Mike, who was my partner in the consultancy, I gave him... because it was only fair because I was taking away time to work on our business we had together. So he had a share of it. And and a developer I became friends with also had 25. He did pretty well. We got some good customers. I mean, the US Coast Guard still use this system. We had Rutgers University as a customer, Eton, the school in UK where the royal family go. We we had some some good customers. It got to the stage of growing. It was paying me an income, but, but not a fortune. And I figured I'll take the money. I had a few more ideas what to do. The whole thing was over in in a year and a half, really, which was right when I met you. How would you describe the amount of money that you got from that sale? That amount of money was more, but still not life-changing. I would say that was, you know, maybe six, seven years income, something like that. You know, it was enough so that I had a bit of a safety net. But again, it was never an option. I mean, I didn't stop work for one second. I never thought this is money I can retire on at all.
0: Fast forward to... 2012, 2013. It is you're in the Philippines meeting your first virtual staff member. You've got six years of income in the bank. What's the idea? What's the spark of the next business?
2: Well, what had happened was when we had the software company, which was called Course Director. I did a lot of kind of silly things, which you know, which weren't very sensible. But I decided I was going to run a Google Education conference and use it to promote our. What do you mean? That- you did things that weren't sensible. If I'd known, it's a really terrible way to promote your own software product, make a conference from scratch. It's really stupid. You know how hard it is to make a conference. And you've got an audience. You have a podcast and a community. I had nothing. And I decided I was going to make a conference to promote our software, which is stupid, really. <laughs> There's no logic to it. But I did. And it took me like, you know, it was a part-time job for six months, a lot of work, as you know, because I had to promote it. I had to do everything. But, but I contacted Google and said, look, can I run this Google education conference. There's never been one. There'd been a few in the US. There hadn't been anything in Europe. And they were like, great, run the Google education conference and you can charge people if you want. I started charging people and people started registering. I kind of presumed I was going to have to pay this money to Google. It was only after a call with Google when I was just about to ask, like, who do I pay the money to when someone mentioned something like, oh, at least you're making some revenue. And I was like, oh, I'm actually going to get to keep this money.
0: So the idea was... I'm going to host an event for people who use Google Suite, and I'm going to teach them how to improve their spreadsheet skills or whatever, but I'm going to casually mention that I'm the founder of Course Director and that they should use it in their schools as well.
2: Yeah, and I thought this would lead to loads of business. and It actually led to nothing, (laughs) (laughs) like zero business, apart from starting a new company,
0: yeah. Was it because the people attending the conference weren't the decision makers for the software at the schools?
2: Partly, it took me so much effort to do this conference that I didn't really have time to figure out how to properly promote the software at the conference. I was just running around. You know what it's like, you know, to run an event, it's quite a lot of work. And I had no employees and I kind of got so lost in this event, which was supposed to be promoting the software that I never actually promoted the software.
0: Do you have a profitable Facebook ads campaign? What happens when you try to increase the budget? your return on investment drops dramatically, right? That's because scaling Facebook ads is the hardest part of the game, but it's also the most profitable. Unfortunately, it's not as easy as just doubling your budget and watching your profits double. It's a lot of hard strategic work. And frankly, it's a full-time job. Today's sponsor, Growth Ninja, is a performance-based Facebook ads agency that specializes in scaling campaigns, helping them go from $500 per day in spend to 5,000 per day while maintaining and improving your ROI. If you want to scale your campaigns dramatically while keeping your return on investment consistent and growing, go check out growthninja.com today and let them know the TMBA podcast sent you. So you run this first event and you don't sell any software. You make only marginal Amount of money you're running around like a crazy man trying to get
2: everybody satisfied at the conference. At what point do you start to think this is a business? People were applying and telling me this is really cheap for a conference. They were saying, you know, normally it's three to five hundred euros for a European conference, you know, and, and you're charging a hundred. And also, I, I had some companies contacting me to sponsor the event. I was kind of naive and I just said, oh, you can just come for free. You know, it's more people as long as you promote the event. So I started realizing that I could be charging a lot more, number one, and I could be getting sponsors for the event as well, because sponsors were getting in touch with me to sponsor the event. How did you respond to what looks like some positive momentum? Two people came to the conference who ended up influencing the the business. There was a guy from Bangkok and a guy from Arkansas, both of whom are still friends. And both of them wanted me to come and run an event with them. So the, the guy in Bangkok was like, look, let's bring this. He worked for the American school in Bangkok. He said, let's do the same thing. And the other guy from Arkansas, he's actually a Californian guy that works with a lot of schools in Arkansas, already had an event there. And he said, look, let's make a Google conference to go along with my conference. So already at this event, I knew I had two more events that we were going to charge a regular fee. I knew that these two guys had an, an audience already to help with the promotion. So that was the business really, you know. We were in talks to sell the software, and I figured, look, this is great, and plus, like you, I love travel. I figured out this business had the potential just to a lot of travel to cool places.
0: It became clear pretty quickly that you were onto something. Like, what were some of those indications that this business had a lot of growth potential?
2: I guess the first event in Bangkok, I think I made thirty-five thousand dollars profit on one event, and I knew I could run a lot of these events. You know, if, if I scaled up and I'd, by this time, you know, I was post four hour work week and I knew about, you know, all these things about virtual teams and how you can scale the business. So I knew from the beginning, from my first event, that it was profitable. I you know, I knew I could just run if I had no employees, I could run two or three of these myself and and, and survive, you know. But if I scaled it, I could make it into a, to a big business.
0: And so the first year that you were in business was twenty thirteen? Correct. And can you walk us through like how your event numbers have scaled
2: over the years or your attendee numbers? In 2013, we ran five events and then sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. 17, it, it grew pretty exponentially, probably 20, then 100 and then exponentially last year to 300 in, in 2017, just over 300. Speaking of prestige and status, you're the
0: CEO of a pretty serious organization. How does that feel?
2: It's cool that I run the organization. I mean, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I live in Prague, but I don't have any status when I walk around, you know, I've got friends, you know, I'm playing squash with some friends tonight, actually, and, you know, they, they're managers in, in big companies and they have an office and people don't really know what I do. They just know I travel a bit and I'm on the internet and sometimes I'm in Starbucks with my headphones on, like, <laughs> I don't, I don't think I have any status in my day-to-day life at all, you know,
0: <laughs> really. Because you kind of change what you do depending on who you're talking to. That's what I do. Last night some guy asked me what I did and I was like, "Oh, I'm an entrepreneur." And like I immediately knew that I had said the wrong thing. He like started to <laughs> he was like worried I was going to sell him into some multi-level marketing thing. And I was like, "I wanted to take it back."
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's interesting cuz like in our community, I mean any relationships anything, it's kind of a global in a small group of people. It it doesn't translate to where you live and your kind of regular life unless maybe you live in somewhere like Chiang Mai or, or Bali or whatever. Here You know, most people I know have got jobs or local businesses, virtually everyone.
0: Dan, when you look at the history of apps events, going from a couple events that you threw with some people that you knew to having a team of 10 professionals.
2: Mostly former teachers. Most of them have master's degrees. I mean, they're, they're serious people. They're amazing people.
0: They're a professional team and you're hosting 300 events a year. From the outside, it looks like this was pretty easy. What's wrong about that perception?
2: Everything. It's like, you know, this yourself better than anyone. Like, running events is a very hard way to make money. It kind of seems easy until you figure out all the moving parts of promoting the event, the logistics of the event. It isn't easy, you know? Like I said, I I kind of looked into it when I just decided to run an event to promote my software. And and I figured out, because I did everything myself, I figured out most of the things I maybe could have read. It's not a very easy way to grow the business. It isn't. What about the
0: entrepreneurship element itself? Like not so much running the events, but growing a business. I mean,
2: was there a moment that you were like, what the hell am I doing? All the time. You know, it's like every week up, all the time. And, you know, I honestly credit a lot of it to your group, the Dynamite Circle. That's the only mastermind or business community I'm a member of and ever have been a member of. So that has really just helped me, you know, bounce off questions, problems, console with people. People think growing a virtual team is kind of easy to hire someone in the Philippines, but, but it's not. And it took me like four or five years of, of hard work to really make this work. But because I knew I wanted to be a global team, I never got sucked in. You know, most people who run an events business have an office and a bunch of telesales people. You know, I don't have any salespeople; just people who do online marketing. So because I was in this community, I really figured a way to make it global and scale it. And I focused on scaling it from day one. And I'm still focusing on scaling it. What didn't you know about virtual team building that you learned over the years? Most of the fault in virtual teams is by the CEO and hire because people have been led to believe by a lot of stuff online that you can just go to a country like the Philippines, hire someone, never meet them, just give them a bunch of tasks, which they'll figure out. And it, it's completely wrong. I go there every year and, and spend time with the team in Sebu and I meet everyone in the team every year. I've realized that there's a big dropout rate. Like, for example, to get to my, my current three guys in Cebu, I've probably hired seven people up until this point, seven additional people. I've realized that you have to really focus on being a great manager. You have to communicate clearly. You have to go and meet people in person. And you have to accept that it's not going to work out every time. You know, you've got to accept that you're going to go through a lot of people, in my opinion.
0: It's interesting, like looking at your team photos and people are all around the world. How do you choose where you're going to target somebody? How do you strategically
2: select Well, the Philippines has always been the logistics, you know, running. So all the stuff around dealing with attendee registrations, getting the events, websites made up, but also more recently doing a lot of online promotion, you know, the graphics, Twitter ads, Facebook ads, you know, social media posts, things like that. So Philippines has always been the back end. Like the engine room of the business, sort of. Exactly. And and still it is. It's easy for me to have everyone in one city in Cebu. I can go and visit them once a year. So this is it's still, it's a long-term project, you know. The rest of the team are all regional people. What kind of my model has become and how I've grown the business in the last year and a half is hiring people who've become managers for each region and kind of, you know, somebody for the US. I've got somebody for Asia, Middle East, somebody for the UK, someone for mainland Europe, just about to hire someone for Latin America. And these people run it as their business. So they're kind of someone I can think of as like, a bit like myself, a bit entrepreneurial, but wants a job, they want a salary that's not necessarily as entrepreneurial as me, but someone who can run it as a business. So that's how I've grown the rest of it. What's your approach as the CEO? How are you a leader? To be honest, I'm not the best leader. I'm not. What I try to do is get people who are sort of self-driven and get them to run their part of a business like a business. So I don't have to manage them too much. You know, my main management is we have a call with the regional people on every Tuesday morning and we all get together. Sometimes that's the only time I speak to any of them during the week. I mean, regularly it, it is the only time I'm really terrible. I, I hate meetings and it's, it's a weakness. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I, I hate meetings. I hate anything scheduled. So I do my best not to communicate with people, which is a bad thing, but it's good in a sense that it makes you hire people that can be self-starters, you know? You
0: mentioned to me that you were
2: experimenting with profit sharing. Not experimenting, but we've been doing it for over a year. So what I do now is each region, the regions I mentioned previously, they all get a 15% profit share for their region. So they get a salary, but that salary comes out of the costs for that region and then all the other costs related to events and, and they keep 15% of the profit and I paid out every quarter. And how have they responded to that emotionally? Well, yeah, it's interesting. It's completely changed how they deal with me, you know, because they've gone from being kind of more of like a regular employee who's a bit kind of political to give me a lot of crap, to be honest, like they, they treat it as a business. <laughs> and like, for example, like I was an event we're doing in Peru and I was going to go out, and then the regional manager was like, look, Dan, I don't want you to go to Peru. I don't want that on my P&L. It's too expensive. Basically, you're not coming, you know? And I was like, rough. So if I want to go to Peru, I've got to pay myself out of my personal money. Cause, and I, I actually like it, you know? I like the fact that he treats it as his business. So the end result is good. But, but to answer the question, how it makes it different. It makes them more argumentative and more like a CEO, you know? They treat it like a business. So it, it, it's good and it's bad, you know? What are they frustrated with you about? Probably what I mentioned before. I'm a bit too absent. I don't I'm not on top of the detail. I don't speak to them more often. I think maybe I'm too absent in terms of getting on meetings and on calls.
0: What's the end game that you sort of had in mind here because it's not shocking to me that, you know, 2013 now fast forward to 2018. You're sort of at that timeline where businesses get bigger, the team gets bigger, You're making good money. This is the time where a lot of people start to think about maybe selling, maybe hiring a CEO. Like, what's the end game that you had imagined for this business?
2: I didn't really get into this thinking I could sell it. You know, I figured it was a good cash flow business and it would be something I would enjoy. You know, it'd be, I like the subject matter. I like the countries we're working in. I think even before people started talking about it a lot in the last year, I always figured I could probably hire someone and be a bit more hands off. And that's kind of how I'm thinking about it now. I mean, now I kind of have five CEOs and they're running most of it. And there's definitely two of them, if not three, who could become CEOs. They could run it and would want to run it. I see that as a most likely option at this point. I could sell it, but it's a limited group of buyers, I think. I think specifically big Google partners, Google education partners, maybe a big events company who wants to get into the education technology space and the Google space. But I haven't had... People knocking on my door saying they want to buy the business, you know? I've had no inquiries. You've managed to parlay this into
0: a side business, which is very common. Can you talk about the genesis story of your new business and let us know the name and everything?
2: Yeah, sure. So the business is called Events Frame, and it's a software app for ticketing and registration. Very similar to Eventbrite, but a much better user experience and much more suited to people running more than one event. With Eventbrite, you know, you can only look in the control panel for one event at a time. It's something maybe from the outside, that's difficult to see how, in some
0: ways, the story of your career is like you weren't sitting around dreaming of like the next big thing. You were getting phone calls from your contacts. You were getting no business from your clients or business from your clients. So one thing sort of led to another because you were in the game. And so this is another example of you just being
2: in the game? And what was the sort of conversation that led to this new business? My partner is a guy called Simon Payne, who's obviously, you know, very well, good friend of the podcast. I met Simon, even though he lives in the same city as me, I met him at the DC event in Berlin. We'd never met before, (laughs) which is amazing, really. That, to be honest, that's the reason why anyone like myself should join the DC because otherwise there's no way to meet these people. They don't go to the British Chamber of Commerce, you know? I went to Berlin met Simon became friends and we talked over the years about many things back then Simon was at Leadpages we were having so many problems with Eventbrite we wanted to make a system we could use ourselves so we started developing it purely for, for ourselves but I figured out very quickly I mean he, like within the first week of development Simon and me were like look let's make this into a product we can sell I always jump on opportunities I think if I've got one good characteristic in business it's like I'm, I see something and I'm, I'm into it you know I saw this and started doing it <laughs>
0: What do you guys hope for the future of EventsFrame? I'm excited to use the platform myself.
2: I'm really excited to be back in SaaS. I did enjoy it, even though it was a, quite a brief foray. I've learned a lot of lessons than Simon has as well. So we're, we're at different stages now to we both were earlier. But I, I want this to be huge. I, I want this to be the point where I don't care about apps events because you know, SaaS is the upside. I'm realizing, again, is so much bigger with a SaaS product than with an events business. I'd love to have a CEO running apps events and just run the software business full time. You've sort
0: of been on a journey that so many listeners of this show aspire to go on. What's your advice for people, you know, five years prior to where you're at coming down this entrepreneurial path?
2: I would say the the one thing I've learned is sticking at something. I mean, this business, you know, running this for five plus years is it's only become this big, depends what you define big, but, you know, seven figure, decent seven figure revenue business and profitable because I, I stuck at it, you know. And you've got to be careful because you've got to know when to cut an idea. But I think one thing I've definitely learned is, is if something's got momentum, just just don't get shiny object syndrome. And people in this community are the worst. I'm the worst. You see someone doing something and you're like, oh, this looks amazing. I want to do that. And I just think just plug away at it long term. I would also say if you get an offer to buy the business, even though you know, I'm never sure if it was the right decision, I still think it's good. I think if you're on the fence, it's good to take it. I think it's great to get a sale. It gives you a bit of confidence. It gives you some security for for anything from a few months to a few years to retirement. I'm glad I've I've sold both my businesses. Even though I probably could have got more from both deals, it it was ultimately a good decision. So I'd always advise someone to, if you're on the fence about selling your business, it might be a good idea to sell it, in in my opinion.
0: Well, Dan, thanks for coming by the podcast and sharing your story with us. And Wish you luck with the new business and hope to follow that story as well. Maybe five years from now, we'll have you back.
2: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Dan, as always.
0: Big thanks to Dan for swinging by the show and sharing his story. Ian, these are the conversations that I look forward to so much at our events. It's just hearing the real story of what's going on in in people's businesses and lives and to see the energy too from Dan like continuing to find the next idea in the current one. And that's what's so difficult about in like corporate life. You can be like, well, three years after I'm here, then I'm going to graduate and then I'm going to be here and then I'm going to be here. In the entrepreneurial life, it doesn't quite go like that, right? You get into the sandbox, you start messing around and something comes up and it's really hard to predict in advance how that's going to work out for you.
1: It is hard to predict. You know, the fact that Dan's been in the game, too, for 15 years, I think is... It's impressive on one hand, Dan, but it's also just a true testament to like being in the work and staying in the work. You know, Dan could very easily still be at his Deloitte job, I think, for 15 years, as many people do. But the fact that he chose this route somewhat, I think, based out of defiance and not having to be a part of that system and and wear those kinds of shirts, because I know Dan... (laughs) He doesn't like to dress like that. He want, He's more stylish than that. <laughs> he couldn't bear it. He's a t-shirt kind of guy. The fact that you're able to kind of get into this life, get into this world, and you're able to figure out ways to stay in it, there's value in it. And this is why he took the path
0: less traveled to deploy a cliche here because his life sounds like some kind of mythic thing to 23-year-old Dan, right? Like... I can spend half the year on the road, and then the moment I decide to have a family, I'm back at home for most of the year, but I don't go to a traditional office. My staff's all around the world. You know, it's like, what? What? You know, but it's real. He's like an astronaut to society. You know what I mean? That wears t-shirts and not spacesuits. You can check out the show notes for this one. The comments, the links to everything mentioned at tropicalmba.com slash entrepreneurial script. And while you're at it, take a look at Dan's new product. For those of you that host events, it's at eventsframe.com slash tropical MBA. They got a special offer for listeners of this show to use the software at a discount. Speaking of entrepreneurship, you know I want to get entrepreneurial and do something that I have been constrained by the rules and I'm sick of the rules. I'm throwing them out. I'm going to do rap and reviews this episode, finally, to thank the listeners of this show that have gone to iTunes and given us a five-star review. I only need one thing for you, Ian. I need you to drop a beat because you know, I don't know what's going on in the hip-hop space currently. It's not my bag.
1: I know, and I'm here to fill you in. I know like ACDC songs. That's where I'm at right now. (laughs) This is important for two reasons. One is we used to do this all the time. And uh, I really enjoyed doing it. So maybe we'll bring it back. But the other thing is, like I said, Dan Taylor, he's a huge hip hop enthusiast. I don't know if you know this, Dan, but last time I was in New York, I actually met up with Dan Taylor and we did our own Action Bronson tour. Action Bronson's a an Albanian rapper. That's so cool. So we went to all of his favorite restaurants. And while we were in the Uber, we were listening to Action Bronson. And it was a great time. So I want to bring back and reviews because of Dan Taylor and also because I think it's fun. You asked me earlier what kind of rap have I been listening to lately. I really like this song from Tyler, the creator, called Okra. Let's do it.
0: Big thanks to everybody who reviewed the show on iTunes. We appreciate it. Five stars, 1,000 days in going strong. Jesse Hanley reports that this podcast sparked a life that I couldn't have imagined three years back. Thanks for everything you do, fellows. Grateful and humbled by your ability to give so much. Huge thanks to Angela Davis from New Zealand. Five stars, down-to-earth conversations for traveling entrepreneurs. She says this is my favorite podcast to help navigate the entrepreneurial jungle finally five stars quality podcast very well produced that's jane at tropicalmba.com helping us to get a five-star review this is a very high quality podcast after just a few episodes you get the sense that these guys are intelligent and are the real deal thanks for putting out such great content it takes a few episodes for it to sink in boss man just a few all right guys thanks so much for the itunes reviews hope you enjoyed ian's hip hop jams and we'll be back next thursday morning 8 a.m eastern standard time hey thanks for listening to the tropical nba podcast you can go to tropicalMBA.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies load up your ipod that is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight we will see you next thursday morning 8 a.m eastern
2: standard time